0: The steady state ratio for networks versus companies is going to be a multiple higher for networks for this exact reason. And it's just very simple in the fact that there are a multivariable, variable reasons why people would want to hold the token. Maybe it's for governance rights. Maybe it's for staking capabilities. Maybe it's just for the cash flows. Maybe it's for, you know, X, Y or Z. Plus you layer on the liquidity premium that you're describing, Mike, and you compare that to any private, you know, equity or, or startup
1: stock. Uh, and there's no comparison in terms of, you know, how you should be valuing this, even in a public sense. Hey, everyone, wanted to give a quick shout out to the Wormhole Foundation. If you are a bell curve listener, you know that transferring across chains can be a massive pain. I certainly do. I complain about it on this program all the time. That's why we are super pumped to have partnered with the Wormhole Foundation, the stewards of the Wormhole Protocol. The Wormhole Protocol connects over 30 blockchains and six different runtimes, including Solana, Sui, Ethereum, Layer 2s, and more. And the coolest part about this particular partnership is that they have made custom bell curve NFTs, which you can get and Mint for free. You can claim that by just going down into the show notes and clicking on the link. All right, guys, on with the show. Hi, everyone. This episode is brought to you by Swell, a team leading the restaking future with their liquid restaking token, r Sweet. Now, I've talked about liquid restaking on this program before. I think it is going to be a massive tectonic shift for Ethereum, and I am super, super excited about it, and I like the Swell team a lot. It goes without saying, do your own research. This is not financial advice. You guys all know the drill. Again, I like this team, and if you stick around, I'm going to describe how you can restake your ETH in Swell, earn pearls, eigenlayer points, and a whole bunch of future rewards. So, thank you very much for Swell for making this episode possible. Hey, everyone. Wanted to give a quick shout-out to this episode's sponsor, Flood Protocol, the optimal DEX aggregator. Now, if you are a listener of Curve, you know that MEV is a massive problem, which is why we are so pumped to partner up with Flood on this season. Flood is the only gasless and MEV-free aggregator that not only gets you the best execution, but also gives you back all the extra surplus that you create every single time you swap. Now, this is relevant for both swappers and developers, but you're going to be hearing all about them later in the program. So for now, thank you, Flood, and back to the show all right, everyone. Welcome back to another roundup edition of Bell Curve. You got Michaels two, to advance. Fellas, how are we doing? How's the week?
2: We're doing. We're doing it. It's going well. Yeah. I'm trying to think of what's been going on. Yeah. It's lower? Um, there was a bit... Yeah, lower. Lower. Um,
1: people are worried. There was a big Eigenlayer raise. I don't know if you guys saw that. 100 million bucks. E16Z took down the whole thing. Talking about real money now. Yeah. Exactly. Um... There's a lot of good stuff this week, actually. I want to, I, I thought we had a fun debate last last show about is restaking leverage. And I've got another topic to run run by you guys, just how you think about market cap versus FDB. But before we get into that, um, Vance, you and I were uh, chatting a little bit about some of these takes around the Bitcoin ETFs. And, you know, friend of the, friend, friend of BlockWorks, Jim Bianco was describing kind of this, uh, <laughs> this opinion where maybe some of the flows that are moving into the, Bitcoin ETFs were less long term. He sort of delineated these two types of ETFs. There's allocator ETFs and degen ETFs, which are mostly traders. And he was implying that a lot of the flows that were moving into the Bitcoin ETF complex are on the degen trader side of things. What do you guys? What do you guys think about that perspective? I'm sorry.
2: What What the fuck are you talking about? It's just like, <laughs> you, you, if like if people if people are like on Twitter trying to be like like what like the Dgen holder ETFs versus the trade like. You don't need to have an opinion on everything and it just feels like TradFi and especially like the ETF Twitter complex of which like, you know, I don't know how much Bianco has in his ETF, but like a lot of these guys have like 20, 30, 40 million dollars of AUM. They're just furious that this thing is kind of happening without them and they're trying to like latch onto the train and I just think it's, you don't need to have an opinion on everything. You can just let it happen. But you, you also are so obviously transparent when you're getting so
0: pissed off or, or ripped or just the cope is so transparent that you know you're not your badge you're not patched, you're, you're, you're not ready to go. Um it is really, really
2: tough to see. But I think a lot of this is really just painful cope. The most recent one, I saw this tweet this morning, is that uh Jim Bianco uh is okay with Bitcoin going up as long as it goes up for the right reasons. So, so now it's like, you know, it's not just that the price can go up or might go up. It's like it has to go up for the right reasons. We're just moving the goalposts all the time. Yeah, I, I do like Jim a lot. He's, um, you know, he's,
1: like I said, friend of Blockworks. He's been a permissionless in the past and is a genuine supporter of the space. I do, I do disagree with him on this idea that Bitcoin has sold its soul and that the ETFs represent a betrayal of Bitcoin's values. Ultimately, the whole point of these systems is that they're permissionless and people should be able to use them in the wrapper or product form that best suits them. And there's a bunch of tradified people that the ETF is going to be best suited for. They should use Bitcoin in that wrapper. There are going to be a whole bunch of other people. I think probably more people in the end that don't want to put it in the ETF wrapper. And that's totally fine too. But I I don't, I think it's almost like it doesn't really matter is the TLDR from my perspective.
2: It doesn't. And like we hold our Bitcoin in Coinbase or self custody and that works for us and other people will hold it in the ETF and that works for them. And his his like other argument is that you know now that Ibit owns so much bitcoin they're going to be able to govern and censor the network it just speaks to a lack of not understanding how these systems work or how their governance operates so yeah some some pretty mid takes this week on the etfs from the uh, the trad trad etf crowd unfortunately i do like bianco i'd i'd subscribe to his research but you know he's kind of just out of his depth on this one i guess it's not trad ETF
0: crowd, but I thought there was a pretty a pretty awesome take from the Coinbase crowd
1: talking about mm. ETH ETF. I don't know if we want to translate yeah. that. Let's talk about Yeah. That. Let's talk about it. Yeah. Can you tee us up there, Michael? What was the what was the sort of T L D R from that tape? Yeah, so Paul Greywall I think that's how you pronounce his last name, but um,
0: chief legal officer of Coinbase put out this long thread. It's obvious that they've been doing a ton of analysis on um, basically exactly what went into the SEC's decision to approve the spot Bitcoin ETF uh, relative to the futures. Um, there's a, a look back period where they run a correlation analysis and they try to assess you know, how correlated are the futures markets on the CME to the spot markets on, you know, the trading venues like Coinbase or, or otherwise where, you know, some of the spot, you know, volume flows. And they found that, I, I think it was, a, numbers are going to be slightly off, but a 98% generally correlation, uh, 98.1% between Bitcoin uh, futures and Bitcoin spot over the look back period. Um, basically Coinbase ran the exact same analysis over the exact same period of time uh, for Ethereum and found that, the correlation is actually higher than what the SEC found for exactly this is the table I'm looking at looking for um yeah so it, it, 98.4 on the hourly for what the commission's analysis found um 99.3 on the hourly for the ethereum analysis that coinbase found um another kind of interesting side note is that it doesn't seem, and uh, this is from Scott Johnson, who's another you know notable person who follows this stuff, tracks it pretty closely. Um, no, no one who has the data, including Coinbase or Scott Johnson or anybody else, has been able to replicate the Commission's analysis to get to that exact ninety eight point four percent. So it seems like there's something you know a little bit different going on, but generally in line with what the sample found from Coinbase of ninety nine point one for Bitcoin. And 99.3 for Ethereum suggests that it's actually more correlated than what you would have over the same period of time. I same amount of time um, uh, is, is really kind of the key point here. Um, so positive sentiment, I think, coming into uh, the time period where you would see an Ethereum ETF potentially get approved, which is the May timeline for that first final approval. Uh, there's also a ton of other analysis that they put together in this document, in this report um just on kind of the legal basis the standing um and kind of using using the arguments that they use to support a bitcoin spot etf
2: to also support a spot etf so positive sentiment there yeah the the other cool part is that they linked their github repo at the bottom of the report so it's like Mm -hmm. I, i was like messing around with it last night you can rerun the analysis yourself michael's point is correct it's um like if you're looking at this table, you're basically looking at the the bottom right square of the ETH futures compared to the top left square of the, of the Bitcoin futures. And the correlations are as high or higher. And that's kind of like, you know, one of the two main arguments of like people who are like, this ETF is not going to get approved. It's like, well, the correlations are higher. The sample period is effectively the same. You know, it's like two, two and a half years for both Bitcoin and ETH. And then the other talk track that they get into is um, like, is ETH a security? How could you tell? Um, and from the launch of the the futures, the micro futures and, and nano futures, uh, both on CME and Coinbase derivatives, like there's just a very succinctly put two page argument on, you know, if this was a security, it would have already been deemed. So even in the Ripple case, the SEC delineates between Bitcoin and ETH and, and the rest of the field. Um, and so it's like, you know, not a security, has the same correlation as Bitcoin. Um, at the end of the day, you still do need, you know, it's a five-person five commission and you need three people to vote for it. And I, you know, like, for, you know, whatever reason, you know, Gary Gensler voted for the Bitcoin ETF and he was the, the tiebreaker. And I think you probably need the same here. You know why he voted, which is because his hands were tied. Right, and, and I think this is, like, increasingly, like, tying his hands, where if you have like this chorus of like, look, all of the data, all the arguments are out, You kind of do need to approve it. Like there, there isn't really a legal basis uh, to not. The other thing I've been thinking of is, you know, let's say that, let's say that we get a new administration at the end of this year, whether you, you want that to happen or not politically, like what would be the path for additional ETFs? And I think the path is... You kind of do need like two years of sample period on a on a CME DCM style futures exchange where you can say we launched you know a year or two ago like say Solana or, or you know fucking Cardano or whatever launches on this CME you have two years of period study period you can call it you can say okay you know the correlation is sufficient and then you get the ETF approval I think that's kind of what I think through in terms of who is going to be next and what timeline it's like. Let's say Hester Purse, green lights, new CME, ETH or you know, Solana Futures next summer, you're probably still waiting until 2026 or 2027 for that sample period to play out.
0: Well, there's also a huge variable that's also involved with all of that, which is that starting the clock on that CME futures product, which is the the CFTC has to declare that asset, whatever it is, to be a, a commodity and not a security, which means that that's how it can start trading on the CME and right now there's only two assets that the CFTC has declared which is bitcoin and ethereum and yep. and so <clears throat> there i i think there might even need to be potentially regulatory change before you would see a futures product start which would start the clock on all of this um, and i know you know the two bills in the house there's a stable coin and then there's the fit for the 21st century well, i don't, i don't, frankly unfortunately don't see those moving too far this round, given that we're already almost in March of, a, of an election year. Um, maybe I'm wrong. Uh, hopefully I'm wrong, but the fit for the 21st century does have a path in it for something to start off as a security and then eventually transition to a commodity based on a number of you know guidelines and, and a framework essentially. And so maybe that is the gating item that then opens, you know, potential more uh, commodity digital assets. Um, but, you know, as it stands right now, there's nothing else that could even start trading on the CME, uh, you know, according to the CFTC.
2: One one last thing on the CME. So in, in the Coinbase analysis, they basically point out that there's this thing called the Commodity Monetization Act, which passed in 2000, which allows the CME to list commodity futures. Uh, they can also list security futures. But if they if they list a security future, basically the SEC has the right to step in and say, like, this is going to be... Uh, both of our jurisdiction, and we're going to mutually kind of uh, decide how these markets work. And, you know, ETH is commodity future. The SEC has not kind of come out and said like, look, we need to kind of both regulate this because it is a security future. But if you have like, you know, uh, in the Coinbase suit, it's like, I think Solana and Matic and like, there's a few others that they, that they designate as unregistered securities. Like if, if those would try to get registered on the CME, the SEC, at least in this administration, would step in and say, like, look, those are unregistered securities. This is gonna be both of our jurisdictions, and it would complicate the process greatly. And so yeah, I mean there's just a lot of um red tape between the, the next assets to get, you know, even listed on the CME in our view.
1: I agree with that. I think ETH is in a really interesting position here because you're you're you guys are convincing me of this. I, I think long-term probably Solana or whichever other you know sufficiently decentralized l1s that that the cftc disease is a commodity they'll probably get etfs as well but i do like it seems like eth is going to be the only one that gets approved this cycle and now eth is the next thing um and so the tailwinds for eth is like okay for if you miss bitcoin now definitely don't miss eth and i think a lot of people are not going to overthink that but then the other thing is just like regular crypto cycle dynamics that you've got coming in so feel like this is the the period of the cycle roughly where I think Vance, you pointed this out last week that it feels like ETH BTC bottomed um, and is probably, I don't know if it's this month or next month or whatever, but the thing that you would start to expect is for Bitcoin dominance, which has been on a tear for the last year. So if you're looking at this chart here, that I just showed on my screen, Bitcoin dominance is way up. This is usually what happens at the end of a bear market beginning of the bull, uh, but then that starts to... Then that starts to change and like bitcoin dominance has been basically like a one-way uh street down to the right over time as more crypto ecosystems spring up and then eth bitcoin is like eth btc is basically a mirror image of that but it's like you hit it on the head like it this looks this point on january 9th basically the day of the uh or the day before the etfs launch like that looks like it put in a bottom there and it feels like it's going to continue to run. So yeah, I think it's a super interesting spot for ETH right here, basically.
2: Yeah, it's um I wish there was like a liquidity adjusted version of these charts cuz like, you know, alts that have like 200, you know, like Worldcoin at like 100 billion, it's not like it's not real in the same liquidity sense as like a like a Bitcoin, like you can't buy or sell, you know, 80 billion dollars of Worldcoin. No. But I wonder how relevant these charts are going forward, especially this cycle with ETF flows because like ETH and, and Bitcoin are kind of like through their unlocks. Like Gemini is like kind of like the last selling of the GBDC slugs, but like they're kind of just like a wash in demand. The alts are, are going to be kind of like, m- maybe not this year, but like next year, like a wash in supply. And like Michael has said this before, it's like a lot of the uh, crypto market activity is, is not like animal spirits or macro. It's like, how many tokens are unlocking on these alts? Um, and yeah, I mean, just the risk return you, that we see from from the majors versus the alts, it's it's just like w- way different this cycle than previous cycles because you have those natural ETF flows. I think that's a really
1: critical dynamic to bring up, and I actually wanna I want to get your guys' opinion because uh, I know we talked about the Starkware airdrop. on on last week's roundup, but, uh, Stark went live, um, you know, SDRK, the token went live and it went live at a pretty dizzyingly high FDV. Um, you know, the, the fully diluted valuation was at one point it was like 33 billion or something like that. It sold off uh, a decent bit, but just to put that in context, that is the, the fully diluted valuations of optimism and arbitrum combined are like 37 billion. So a lot of people were looking at this and just scratching their heads and saying, this doesn't make a whole lot of sense. Like this is this kind of low float, high FDB dynamic. And Michael, I don't, it sounds like you've got opinions on this. I don't know if you want to take this, but this is like, we kind of saw this last cycle a little bit. Um, but yeah, what is your take on, I guess, STRK the token, but then also like just the supply and unlock dynamic that you see in, in alts generally? I mean, I think that this has been a conversation that's been debated about
0: literally for years, maybe even multiple cycles at this point of like <clears throat> market cap versus FTE, which one matters and which one doesn't matter. Um, the way that you could basically think about this is if you're a trader and you're thinking in a very short mindset, short term mindset, market cap is what matters. If you're someone who is thinking about things in terms of months or years, fully diluted valuation is what matters. And it all depends on when that number will change without any input from your end or from the protocol's end other than the unlock schedule. And so what I mean by this is if you're looking at a wave of unlocks that are going to double or triple the market cap based off of you know, tokens becoming online, that, that is a supply shock uh, in, in a negative sense to to the entire network. And I think you know one of the reasons why Starware Started off getting kind of some bad press or bad news is because of the way that they had done this unlock schedule, where they had launched the token, the token was already vesting at this point, or it had already started its unlock schedule, and then two months after, the token actually was airdropped and unlocked. Is the, is the first unlock for investors and team? That's a very atypical structure, and it, it it feels like they're trying to unlock and give the liquidity to you know potentially insiders. Sooner than what other protocols would would do. Combine that with a really high FTV, and it looks a little bit, you know, wanty, um, to say the least. But I, I think if you look at any of the major unlock schedules of any of these protocol tokens, um, you could start off with a really high F D V, But those tokens don't matter until you have dom- until you have domain over them. And if you don't, then you know you you can pontificate as to what they'll be worth when you have that but it, it really doesn't count until you do um and so you know if you're an airdrop farmer or if you're someone who's just buying these things on the secondary markets when they launch sure you know that none of this really kind of matters because you're you're thinking about things in terms of relative days or, or potentially weeks um, but if you're an
2: investor in the space
0: fdb is the only thing that matters
2: the like an a kind of orthogonal point to this is um you know, like Starkware is at 20 billion right now. I guess it probably halved since launch. It launched at like 350, now it's at 183. And, you know, the unlocks for investors come in two months. Um, and it's like ARB is kind of roughly the same FDV, Optimism is roughly the same FDV. Um, but like once you see these unlocks start to hit, like it feels like that's the signal for traders to start rotating and you know for for 5% of people to rotate and win in a new coin 95% have to lose and you, like just like a thought experiment is um you know like a lot of L1s or L2s are going to raise in private rounds at 500 million or launch at a billion um and kind of all these L2s roughly do the same thing in our mind and there's going to be a lot more of them a lot of people are going to want to buy the one billion dollar FDV coin instead of the 20 billion dollar FDV coin, especially as those unlocks hit. And I think you tweeted this today or maybe yesterday, Mike, but like are are the are the like the name brand L2s that are kind of older that are unlocking gonna be more powerful from like an ecosystem, momentum, developer perspective than the hundreds of l2s that are launching today? Like this guy Kruger Macro, um, he tweeted out something funny today, which is there's this there's this uh, roll up as a service platform called Conduit. You can click, you know, OP stack, you can click Celestia DA and you can click to deploy it. It's like three clicks. And he was like, you know, I'm raising uh, 10 million on 100 million FDV for this roll up that I just clicked deployed like man shit like 100 million ftp that's pretty good when when you're looking at starkware at 20, 10, <laughs> I think where minds go um but again like for for five percent of people to win rotating 95 percent have to lose like that that is that is the game and just as like to put it in there to... we, we don't play that game by the way like yeah we're, we're kind of doing different stuff but it's always helpful to kind of put the meta in context just to anecdote this, um, let's say that it was May
0: of 2021 and you know the same narrative was kind of the same narrative that we saw in that period of time, which is Alt Layer 1s were the things that were just ripping at that point. And you saw this, another Alt Layer 1 that had massive backing, massive funding, um, and massive talent uh, come out called Internet Computer Protocol. And you saw that launch at $500 in May of 2021, you know, bull market times, this is like Pico bull. And by the time we hit the Pico top, it was already down to $35. And, and right now it's, it's trading at about 12 and a half. And you, you, you just witnessed, you know, the, the bleed out, you know, 97%, whatever that is, Um, you know, it, it can happen really fast, but it can also, you know, sustain there for a really long time. And, and, the crazy thing is, with the inflation schedule that they have, even at $12.5, it's still like a $6.5 billion protocol. Um, and, and that is exactly kind of the difference between FDV and market cap, which is your market cap will change. The supply dynamics will change. you know, The, the flows in and out of the protocol will change independent of whether or not the price changes. And it's really flows that determine over a longer period of time, what the value of these things are, um, shorter period of time as well, but but flows, you know, in, and, and this is what we're talking about with the ETF. Like flows into the ETF are positive. You know, less supply based on the happening is positive for things like price. Um, and, and that's kind of what you're evaluated against. And so you really have to think about the supply dynamics. And I think internet computer protocol ICP is a great example
2: of, of how it can turn to get you. I think the standard operating procedure is Bitcoin hits its all time high first. That happened in 2020. Mm-hmm. Then in 2021, you had that massive three or four X ETH BTC move up, and it hit its all time high. And then you kind of see what the alts mm-hmm. are going to do. Um, I think there's so many coins now relative to prior cycles that you'll probably see weaker breadth in terms of like, is everything participating? Um, especially in light of things like unlocks. Like, you know, we, we like Arbitrum. We work with Arbitrum. They're unlocking $2 billion in the next couple of months of tokens. Um, and regardless of what you think of the project and, and how it's doing, like that is going to be a headwind. And it, and it will, someone will need to buy those coins for it to proceed higher. There's a lot of those. Um, on the other hand, there's things that um, I'm trying to, think of how much we can say but like there's coins that are like doing really well they have a really strong ecosystem they had a brutal unlock in the bear market like Mm -hmm. one that comes to mind is like imx where you know the price bottomed at i think it was like 38 cents or 39 cents and it's like at 350 today Mm -hmm. where you had all those unlocks happen in the bear market and those are actually helpful because you you're just clearing those coins at much lower prices like imx did all of its unlocks at basically like a billion or two billion fully diluted and if you're unlocking five percent even at those prices you need a hundred million dollars of buying to step in and and clear that out if it's 10x higher you need a billion um and so like people who've paid that tax in the bear market i think are going to do better but i i can continue to believe this cycle is about quality like people who are just like I'm going to hold meme coins and they're going to rip a hundred x, it just kind of misses the point of like like you see all these ETH and, and Bitcoin flows and all these like positive things happening and the burn and the apps and like your responses to buy meme coins, it just doesn't feel like the the right way to think about this cycle or or crypto going forward as a whole. So w- one one other kind of analogy, totally agree with all of that.
0: Um, Vance and I have talked a lot about this, but. Um, you know, one of the analogies that I was thinking about this week is kind of like, um, and I was listening to a number of like traditional investors, like the Bill Ackman's of the world and, and, um, you know, listening to their kind of career progression and what it was like. And I guess he started in the late eighties, nineties and, and two thousands. Um, and you know, in like the Warren Buffett, you know, heyday, um, like Mm -hmm. the, the the Ben Graham analysis heyday, security analysis heyday. There weren't that many companies that you were able to buy. There, you couldn't do analysis on hundreds of companies. You probably had tens of companies that were publicly traded and liquid, and you could you could do, run the analysis on. I can kind of think of that as what 2021 cycle was. There were tens of opportunities that were public, you know, available, liquid, um, and that you could kind of like watch and follow and see. Um now we're getting to the point where that is getting to be hundreds. Um and so one of the big things, you know, that was the narrative when it was worn above it was can you find value hiding in plain sight? And you know, obviously not electronically traded markets back then, but you you could find real value hiding in plain sight. I think the difference now is that obviously the percentage of successes will go down based off of the denominator effect growing, but the bigger thing now isn't going to be can you provide value but can you provide and and sustain value but also have a breakout narrative and it it requires these protocols to hit on something or create something you know from a narrative perspective that drives them forward and above the rest of the crowd Um, because there is just going to be so much more noise this time around where the there are like two maybe three ethereum alt layer ones that you have to think about. there's there's like 10, maybe 20 and potentially 30 by the end of the cycle. and and so I think you kind of have to position yourself to, to not only figure out you know how can we build sustainable value for the users the developers, et etc, et etc, but how do we hit on something or create something new from a narrative perspective that, that drives us through? Um, it's just a,
2: a major difference this round versus last round. I think there's obvious candidates. It's like DeFi, it's gaming, like the the funds that we talked to. Were like, who's got fundamentals? DeFi. Who's got users? Like Gaming. Where where where? I, I think people are are gonna get confused. Is like Michael's right. Where there was four or five big old L ones. Like you're either a Luna guy or an Avalanche guy or a Solana guy, and I guess there was like Phantom last cycle or it, but like the, it dropped off pretty quickly. Now I would say there's like probably less momentum in the all L1s and more momentum and focus on the L2s just because there's so many of them launching. And like unless you're vertically oriented and like going after gaming and like that's all you do or you're going after like even like blast with NFTs and that's all you do. It's kind of hard to tell them apart. Other than like, you know, Arbitrum having I think it's like a million or two ETH bridged, like that certainly feels kind of like defensible. Optimism has a lot less TVL but I guess they have more ecosystem distribution. But like all these things, and we talked to all these projects, like their whole strategy is we're going to launch the L2. We're going to do either an AVS on Eigenlayer or we're going to give tokens away to you know people to bridge ETH. But like all of this stuff is like a black hole for ETH. And I think that's like a pretty easy way to understand the L2 complex at the moment until somebody breaks out. is It's just like very net beneficial to ETH. But,
0: but what I'm what I'm saying is okay. Maybe it's not alt layer ones specifically in this cycle. I'm saying factor in all the alt layer ones, all the all all the layer twos, basically anything that could be an execution environment or a network. And you've got you know SVM with parallelization. You've got EVM with parallelization. You've got uh, I mean you can literally mix and match all the different flavors of the tech stack. And there is an L2 right now and it's probably raised at a at a billion plus multi-billion dollar valuation has a massive bankroll and you know has 50 60, 70 developers building on top of it like i can think of at least 10 to 15 that fit that exact criteria right now and like that and combined with what we're just talking about which is you know you're going to launch and then a year later you're going to have your first unlock like massive supply of these digital assets is gonna be coming online in 2025, maybe 2026, when depending on when these things launch. And it it's like, a, it, it is truly like
1: a 10X difference in terms of that factor versus what we saw in 2021. Hey everyone, wanted to give a quick shout out to the Wormhole Foundation. If you are a Bell Curve listener, you know that transferring across Chains can be a massive pain. I certainly do. I complain about it on this program all the time. That's why we are super pumped to have partnered with the Wormhole Foundation, the stewards of the Wormhole Protocol. The Wormhole Protocol connects over 30 blockchains and six different runtimes, including Solana, Sui, Ethereum, Layer 2s, and more. And the coolest part about this particular partnership is that they have made custom bell curve NFTs, which you can get and mint for free. You can claim that by just going down into the show notes and clicking on the link. All right, guys, on with the show. Hey, everyone. This episode is brought to you by Swell, a liquid restaking protocol and the issuer of the R Suite liquid restaking token. Now, if you're a listener of Bell Curve, you know that I am just so fascinated by restaking and liquid restaking. I think it is going to be one of the most important trends in Ethereum. And I am really excited for the benefit that it unlocks both users and also Ethereum, the protocol itself. Now, disclaimer whenever there's yield involved in a product, do your own research. This is not financial advice. You guys know the drill, but Swell is a great team. They have a non custodial product and they are mission driven on giving you the best liquid staking experience. If you take one benefit away from using liquid restaking, make it be capital efficiency. Now you can earn passive yield from Ethereum. You can earn yield from multiple actively validated services that stack on top of that and then you can still use our suite as collateral in DeFi. and because i know y'all are a bunch of DeGen's, there's a points angle here as well but in swell we call them pearls so pearls equal points and if you stake your ETH with swell you can earn pearls and future eigenlayer rewards and when there's a token generation event you can swap your pearls for swell tokens head over click the link at the bottom of this episode again just pause what you're doing right now go click the link at the bottom of this episode check out swell to you later. Hey everyone, want to give a quick shout out to this episode's sponsor, Flood Protocol, the optimal DEX aggregator. Now, Flood is the perfect partner for this episode on the multi chain future because Flood is solving so many of the issues that we're going to be talking about this season. And this is relevant for both traders and devs. So if you are a trader, you should definitely head over to FloodSwap and start trading because they solve three massive problems. One, gasless trading. No more pesky trading fees. Two, you don't have to worry about getting front run. MEV free. And then three, they have excellent order routing so that you know that you are getting the best price. So head over to FloodSwap and click the link in the bottom of the show notes. We're going to send you right there. For the devs out there, you can leverage Flood's flexible hooks, allowing you to make swapping a first class primitive by adding custom order types like T-wops. or if you're a wallet builder or something like that you can actually build your own order flow auction in and start recapturing a bunch of bad mev if you want to reach out to them go to devs at flood.bid or just jump right in the discord all right guys thanks very much appreciate you Flood. i had a long discussion with with one of our analysts dan about this last night and one of the things that i've never really been able to we talked about it a little bit on this show but i've been struggling to square the circle in between the way that startup funding works and the way that protocol funding works and the different quirks in between the two of them. And I read this great piece this week. um, So shout out to the author Grayson, Grayson Alto, who wrote about um, trying to bridge the gap in between market cap and FDV and He has a slightly more analytical framework, but it's like very much what you two were just describing, which is on a short-term timeframe, you know, the price is set by the circulating supply and the market cap. But over time, uh, you know, it's FDV that ends up mattering. And the assumption is like, basically, if you only look at FDV, then you're assuming that all of those unlocks happen today, right? And that's not actually the case. And there are some unlocks, which like there could be vests that are associated with that. There could be, uh, some of the depending on where the supply sits if it's with the team or investors or if it's in the dow treasury like it means different things in terms of how available that supply is and like one of the things that at least i've been thinking about for a while but like you guys i'm sure have more sophisticated thoughts on me just being bcs is that i'm not really sure it, it feels like with this whole idea if you launch day one and all the tokens that you're ever going to have exist like Maybe that's not really the best dynamic, actually, in the way that funding works in a more traditional startup has better outcomes for everyone. And I tried to draw this out, actually, in a, in a really simplified uh, chart um, just to even make it make sense in, in my own head. Um, so the difference basically being for an early stage startup. Yeah, you basically go through different stages where new tranches of equity are issued. So you can see my screen here what you're showing is like a really simplified version of what this looks like from a company standpoint, where like, let's assume like there's a valuation metric here, which is like year one, year two, year three, year four, year five. Let's just assume all of the metrics that you need to hit to raise to continue to grow your valuation are being hit. Um, And there's a 100,000 shares at a million dollars in the first year, you kind of keep doubling the valuation year over year, again, really simplified, you break it down by investor shares and team shares. And you assume that Every year when you're raising, you top up the amount of team shares, like you increase the the amount in your equity pool and that you have to sell 20% of the company. Like roughly, this is what the share price ends up looking like. And price discovery happens by this like overall total amount of shares and valuation, which is set in the private markets by investors directly with the team. Whereas in and that has this kind of desirable impact, assuming you don't fuck everything up and have to do a down round, which is obviously brutal in this situation like then this kind of goes up in in this this up only pattern in the private markets. And in protocols it's just really different. Um you kind of you go there are different very different sources of where those tokens ultimately end up sitting. Like some of it goes towards the team, some of it goes towards investors, and then there's us and the, these are kind of like your your the combination of like insider tokens, which is good to have, right? You want to have investors and team incentivized. But ultimately, what ends up happening, even with the same amount of tokens and the same like intrinsic valuation, is now you've moved price discovery off of this one hundred thousand uh, dollar number into a much smaller number of actually circulating tokens, which is really like the community portion of this, and maybe some some DAO tokens. Um, and what you end up with is this like kind of crazy to- price per token because you're pricing this based off a really small amount of of what's circulating and like up so basically so, the mechanism for.
0: Yeah. yeah I see, I see what you're saying. And, and let me, let me just explain it from maybe our perspective or, or definitely my perspective, which is the pricing never happens based off of market cap and intrinsic valuation, mm-hmm. which is, you know, ha- how it's modeled out here. The price is always based off of the F D V, especially when you're talking about something that is launch Like the way I look at, you know, CoinGecko or any of these different, uh, yeah, protocol pages or price pages is uh, I look at the token price and then I look at the FDV and then I back into via the market cap, how much of the tokens are actually tradable. And that's the only thing I look at from a market cap perspective. And mm. and then it's sort of like, okay, what are the token allocations? So the token value for me is always what is the FDV? And another thing in terms of you know the, the mechanisms here, I, there, there is a major fundamental difference between building a protocol versus building a company and you know a company and we can get into all the details around this but you know one of the things that i think goes undervalued in this context is when you're building a company and you have no you know desire to build a protocol it's all about control how many shares do you how much ownership do you have and and if you're a venture capitalist you know really really good vcs will say oh, i need to own 20 percent of the for me to be able to be, you know, like the institutional backer of this business. Good CEOs will say, okay, great. I want to own an equal amount, you know, and, and I want, you know, the co founder should be owning that much as well. And Dilution, it depends on the company and, you know, the business model, et cetera, uh, and the capital um, requirements to get there. But ownership is really, you know, what people care about because that dictates who controls the company going forward. Whereas if you talk to founders of protocols, and if you talk to people who are building protocols, literally the opposite it is the vitalik buterin i eventually need to turn this over to a decentralized community and it needs needs to be a self-sustaining open source protocol going forward and that difference i think belies a lot of the funding mechanisms and and sort of the reasoning behind why if we're an investor in a protocol You know five percent is kind of the the rough target that we have for ownership because you know we want to be a participant we want to be a steward we want to you know engage in the protocol but if you're overwhelming you know majority of the of the token especially from the investor allocation you know there's questions of decentralization there's questions of you know motive and and so it is a totally fundamentally different way of fundraising but also governing and, and running these different types of entities that I think you know lead to these bisecting you know directions
1: yeah i think it's a really good point and and the the whole point of decentralization is that if you're a protocol you have new use cases that are available to you that you wouldn't if you were in a company structure and like a really easy sort of heuristic for that is like we trust bitcoin or eth to be a form of money because it's really decentralized no one controls it google is an extremely competent company makes a ton of money would you trust them to issue a currency No, you wouldn't, because (laughs) for obvious reasons that are super apparent. So, I think I completely agree with you on that, Michael. I guess the point that I was kind of trying to make sense of myself, um, and again, just like I just put this together like late last night, so I didn't think too much about it. But basically, the I think the reason why, like you've seen so many charts like this in crypto, so we're talking about you know ICP or whatever that protocol's you know Definity is called now. But there are tons of charts like this of like really good protocols. Like if you look at some of the DeFi 1.0, like Uniswap or uh, like some of those, like those are down like 90% from their all-time highs. And it's not some of them. It's like most of them are like that. Uniswap, Aave, like great protocols. And I think it has to do with this dynamic of, you know, the the price discovery changes from, you know, private market investors to something that looks like... and. It it sounds like you guys don't think about it like this, but I do think that a lot of like traders end up do thinking like market cap in the short term, which is extremely um, constricted in terms of the float. But then over time, investors sell um, and, and the team sells as their unlocks happen. And so you're like kind of flooding the market at the worst possible time. And the other thing that's like a little bit different in between protocols and companies is like protocols try to pay for things in their token which is a little bit like, I know that happens a little bit in Silicon Valley, but it doesn't happen nearly to the same degree that there's a Dow treasury with like your token and like Blockworks often receives payment from protocols with a token. And so there's just this kind of like dumping mechanism. And the other, the other thing I think that was sort of, I was thinking about as we were going through this is it actually makes sense to me that there should be some sort of liquidity premium on these tokens. Like one of the things that kind of sucks about owning startup equity is that you don't have access to sell it for sometimes a long period of time. And you as an employee, especially have no window in terms of when that's going to be. So a token being liquid on day one, all else being equal, assuming, yeah, Ceteris paribus, the token should be worth more because you can sell it today. And you can see that, you know, when like a lot of employees don't end up equ- valuing equity, but like tokens are a huge um, uh, vehicle for or a lever uh, to acquire talent. During these periods of time, and I, think I, that's I what mean, I think.
0: I have a thesis, a pretty strong thesis, over the last five years that, and I think it's been you know pretty much proven at this point that the steady state price to earnings, if we want to call it that, um, you know, protocol revenue that's distributed to the token holders, the cash flow of you know that's generated by these protocols, the steady state ratio. For networks versus companies is going to be a multiple higher for networks for this exact reason, and it's just very simple in the fact that there are multi-variable reasons why people would want to hold the token. Maybe it's for governance rights. Maybe it's for staking capabilities. Maybe it's just for the cash flows. Maybe it's for you know X, Y, or Z. Plus, you layer on the liquidity premium that you're describing, Mike, and you compare that to any private you know equity or, or startup stock. Uh, and there's no comparison in terms of, you know, how you should be valuing this, even in a public sense, like in, in, imagine if you could take your Apple shares and stake them to earn you know, some additional governance rights in Apple or participate in, in a different way in the Apple ecosystem. You know, it, that's kind of what we're talking about here when you have a digital
1: asset that's based in software. Yeah, it's just, it's a little bit of a, honestly, even just trying to think through this, uh, it's kind of dangerous to do live on on a podcast. Just put my brain in a pretzel a little bit, but I'm trying to describe why there are these like common. If you look at the chart for even protocols that I think are great, it like fits this pattern, like this early kind of pump, and then they have to work through this weird supply overhang that they give themselves. And the reason why I feel like it's relevant, even talking about these L2s, it's like I I hear you, Vance, on the like like someone's going to have to buy up all this arbitrum, but it doesn't feel like we're really changing the dynamic for even the new L2s that are launching. So. Yeah, they look cheaper now, but they're going to end up with the same issue that everyone else ends up facing at some point, right? We we aren't,
2: and I, I don't think these are um answerable questions to some extent. It kind of depends on what the asset is. Mm. ETH went from I forget what it was after the Dow hack, but it went from like, you know, maybe like 10 to like back to like a dollar 40. And it was just like, fuck. This is over. <laughs> And now it's at 3000 um, But most assets don't have that because most assets are not singular in that way. And so what you need to ask yourself is like, am I a thesis-long investor in Starkware at $20 billion two months before investor unlocks? If so, why? And if you can answer that question and, and get right with yourself, you should hold it. But if you can't, you probably should think a little bit more holistically about what you're investing in because... It's not just like I get to buy a meme coin and it will outpace the crypto market by 10x anymore. I think we're just in a much different environment today than we are even like a few years ago. There's just way more mm-hmm. coins. There's way more of them to be sold and there needs to be way more buying to keep them at the same prices.
1: do you guys think about the idea that I've seen like Delphi has pushed for this a little bit and you see, you see a little bit of it uh, here and there on Twitter, which is sort of this return of ICOs. What do you guys think about that? And I know the last thing I'll say here is the regulatory overhang of doing this is extremely challenging. And there's probably a good reason. There's a lot of shenanigans that happened in the ICO era. Just the idea being that if you launch to the community, uh, that everyone gets a a sort of fairer shake at it. And this is sort of what I guess Kobe's maybe trying to do potentially. But yeah, I mean, what do you guys think about this sort of return of ICOs type thing?
2: It's going to be hard for, for Michael Rye to disavow ICOs, like back in the day, this is what we did. And this is what allowed us to be capitalized and really start framework. And so like, you know, to the extent that people are going to be doing things like this, like, I don't know, I don't feel like we can really pass judgment on people speculating on ICOs just because it was such an amazing opportunity for us, um, as is a lot of crypto. From like a developer perspective or a project perspective, if you're doing an ICO in this day and age, you are taking risk. You should get right with yourself and understand that. And if you're outside the U S maybe it's different. Um, I prefer things like fair launches and those seem like a kind of a better crack at, you know, financial opportunity for a lot of people, but like we are now getting in the cycle in the part of the cycle where the stakes are high enough that people are going to do stuff like this, you know, you're not going to do a bear market, a bear market ICO. The legal risks outweigh the financial rewards that you are potentially going to reap. But now it's like people can, you know, put $100 million into an ICO and the project raises that and the token goes nuts and it's like worth it. Or you can fight the SEC or fight the lawsuits or whatever. So these things are going to happen. Um, I just think you have a natural selection bias that best projects do not ICO. But if if Kobe does things like, you know, the the project he's up to I think that can help a lot which is cool
0: I and there, there this is also like there are so many different flavors of what can be determined to be an ICO uh mm-hmm. it's it's really hard to just like plaster one perspective across the entire I mean you could do on one end the total like twenty seventeen summer twenty seventeen here's an Ethereum address you know send the we'll send you back tokens like I don't see that necessarily happening that often uh, if ever really anymore um and, and you could also do the like intermediate step of like geogating right like that that can definitely help in an argument um there's also things like twin list and and we have uh portfolio companies that have recently done twin list sales everyone's kyc you're not able to buy a certain amount It gets distribution into the hands of, of potential customers Um, Notoriety, like it it solves a lot of problems. You have the fundraise for the business, like there are a lot of different flavors of, you know, token sales to individual community members. Um, And then there's also I mean, we obviously talked about this a lot, but like airdrops novel mechanisms of doing points programs can get a lot of the same effect minus the fundraise where you get your token in the hands of a number of different people you force them, you know, usually to do something of value for the protocol participating in some way shape or form and i i mean i, I just get creative in terms of um you know the relative risk reward of whatever it is that you're doing
2: try not to break any laws if you can yeah consult consult counsel oh, wherever yeah. possible <laughs> please
1: yeah the uh, i agree with you I, I think that the biggest question for me is like the adverse selection problem this is a really known issue with platforms like Kickstarter in the past. And the idea is if you have a high if you have a high caliber founder, you'd want to partner with the frameworks of the world, right? Instead of, you know, ten thousand random dentists because you guys provide a lot of value. Um so I think that's that's the ultimate challenge with it. And there's an optic standpoint. There's like a whole bunch of standpoints for, or like uh considerations from the founder standpoint. One well, one 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 doesn't preclude the other. And I think this is this is kind of
0: the, the main point. I think you can work with the frameworks of the world and do a distribution to community
1: members. And I think that that is what the playbook should be. That's what I was going to say is, yeah, it doesn't have to be totally binary. And you could even imagine something like, you could even imagine there are really high value, like community members out there. And people kind of do this with like angeling right now. But uh, you could have like even one layer more on that spectrum instead of like institutional kind of VC money here, angels here then like high caliber uh community participants that maybe aren't angels because they don't meet a certain monetary threshold or whatever. But you could even, if there is some kind of platform, you could take a test or submit, you know, proof of your contribution on the forum for however long and like maybe that could get you some sort of preferential allocation or something like that. I don't know. There, there are lots of different flavors to this. I I totally agree. Um
2: let's uh let's let's move on to 4844 um... And this, uh, this Bitcoin tweet from Balaji. So Balaji, I mean, unfortunately for him, Bitcoin did not go to a million in uh, in two weeks' time. But he just tweeted out, Bitcoin has passed all-time highs in 14 different countries. I-, I think this is actually pretty interesting just because, um, obviously, like, the numbers that I'm keeping track of are the IBIT all-time high. We're at $29 on IBIT. All-time high for IBIT is 31, so that'll be a moment. Uh, there's obviously the USD all-time high, which is, I think, 69,000. Um, but meanwhile, 14 different countries, you've got Bitcoin at all-time highs, including in in, in the, uh, both the, the Japanese yen and then uh, Chinese renminbi. Um, It's just really impressive that most of these countries are kind of like living in the future where, where the bull market all-time high has been broken like kind of gives you a little bit of I uh, I don't know. We we could, we could, we could kind of see like the international side of things pick up just based on more euphoria from the all time highs. Mm. I, I like that take
1: a lot. And I've seen some people on Twitter respond to this. It's like, well, if you looked at the S P, you know, it would look very similar. And it's like, yeah, but these people may, they can't buy the S P. They can buy Bitcoin. That's the whole point. So yeah, I've, I think it's a super interesting take and even if Balaji didn't end up being right, I think he was he was kind of trying to, you know, uh flash the bat symbol type thing for Bitcoin and I think he ended up doing that. So Balaji's
2: laughing all the way to the bank. The dude has more yeah. coin than than I think anybody knows about. So whether it goes to a million today or in 10 years, like he's good. Yeah. What do you guys think about So could you give it like an
1: update on 4844 and just Dankun in general like what is the what is the sort of expected timeline there and then i think people are very curious about what is going to there's the 4844 there there are lots of different um sort of eips that are lumped in with the hard fork but 4844 is the proto dank sharding part of it and that should immediately um make some of the da costs for roll-ups cheaper so what are your guys thoughts overall about 4844 as a catalyst and then how much do you think it's going to impact things on the da cost side for roll-ups
2: so Denkun is March 13th um, and it looks like it's going to decrease DA somewhere between, you know, five and 10 X for, for L2s. So that'll be pretty significant in terms of, you know, that cost and it kind of like sits kind of opposite from like a Celestia in terms of narrative where if those things are roughly the same, like maybe you kind of see the the modular thesis slow down a little bit in terms of like why would you switch DA layers if if they're roughly cost effective? Um, I think the stuff that we see on the private side is there's a lot of L2s that are waiting to launch, um, and so like whatever cost offset you have in terms of fees not coming to ETH, like you're going to have more supply of L2s launching um, and and using things like four eight four four for DA. Um, and so I think you're just going to see an increasing amount of L2s launch and and we're already seeing a ton, but, you know, like think of, you know, March 13th as the starting gun for all these L2s to launch. Then you have Eigenlayer probably sometime in Q2 with all the ABS launching and restaking launching. Like it just feels like there's so many catalysts right now for ETH specifically on the technical side. Um, and developers are going to take advantage of that. So I think it's positive overall. Kind of something we've been waiting for for i think like a year at this point
0: there's also a number of other changes that are getting um closer and closer that are going to be in the next hard fork um which is looking like it, it could be later this year as well um and and some of those um you know start to even get closer and closer to kind of the full um
1: dain sharding concepts yeah and that next that next hard fork that's electro right i think remember the name. When, when is that? still being discussed. Yeah, I thought it was well the reason I was bored sort of paying attention to it is because they're they're talking about adding a um, big a decent change to eth's uh, issuance policy. I'm not sure if you guys saw this, but there was a big thread that came out uh, today by some of the folks from the Ethereum Foundation actually it might be worth getting your guys take on here because it's a pretty meaningful change to the protocol if this does end up getting implemented and i know the ef has been um there some folks from the ef have been kind of interested in this and talking about it but the idea is to adjust the issuance policy of ethereum to target a certain percentage of stake and specifically in this proposal there would be something that looks ultimately like a hard cap for stake that comes in at once 25 percent of the network is staked then there's actually negative issuance policy. So if you are staking and more than 25% of ETH in the network has been staked, you're actually losing, um, you know, like you're at your your ETH balance is going down. And the rationale for this mostly has to do with liquid staking. And there's kind of a, there's a push pull here in between one, you could argue that at a certain point, like the network doesn't really need much more security after a certain amount has been staked. Um, and then if you do, if, if there are there is a whole bunch more staking and specifically in eth lido the STEETH is issued by lido which is very separate from ethereum the protocol and ethereum doesn't have a lot great ways to regulate that then uh, STEETH could start to compete with actually the moneyness quote of ethereum itself Um, so and there are some there are some risks that are associated with that right like lido is a great team um they put a lot of their internal Dev resources towards decentralizing and making sure there are no bugs and stuff like that. But you can never really be sure, right? It's not a, it's not as safe as Ethereum, the protocol. So what would you guys think about this policy of adjusting the the issuance of Ethereum to actually target uh or sort of cap uh the percentage of ETH at staked?
2: Um I mean the negative issuance I don't frankly like. Um... And this is such a substantial change that I think this is probably going to be like a multi-year discussion. Mm-hmm. Um, and like the Lido team published something that's kind of like on the opposite side of this. And there's like a lot of LST oriented teams that are like obviously on the other, other side of this. And so the question is like, is it like the EF or is it like the, the broader community who has a lot of interest in staking, who's going to dictate this trend? Um, and I don't think targeting 25% staking when we're already well north of that makes a ton of sense so like that number doesn't seem right um i frankly need to read more i need to read this before i can like respond to it so maybe we can do like a session on this next next time um don't want to prejudge you know this work and i know the guy who wrote this and he's smart so you know want to kind of give him his due
1: i don't know michael we don't have to go too deep and maybe we can cover it next week it's just I've been, I've been thinking about this a lot because i'm you know, restaking is like the the big, like we talked about that quite a bit on, on last week's show. And there's a lot of money that's going into that, be it for new yield or like maybe it's farming eigen points or or tokens in the meantime. But I, d- I do worry, the, the one worry that I have with uh, capping the amount of issuance is that I think it actually, it might do the opposite of what this proposal is intended to do. And it might actually push people further along the risk curve into uh, more restaking opportunities. Like, this is kind of the dynamic totally. about how it works in five with interest rates, right? It's like if you lower the interest rate, you are actually encouraging people to take more risk, right? People don't just say, oh, well, I guess I'm going to earn less yield than I was earning. <laughs> They're like, no, I need to earn the same amount of yield. And now I need to go into riskier and riskier opportunities. And so I, I worry a little bit just that it would, you know, that it could backfire is,
2: is the only concern that I have. It's pretty bullish eigenlayer if this ends up uh, happening. But bullish restaking in general. I think it's you're gonna see a plurality of approaches, not just Eigenlayer. If something like this especially kinda of happens where you're gonna see people yellowing ETH all over the place, which has negative effects, obviously. All right. We've probably got
1: time for one more thing. We've got we can either talk about Gauntlet leaving Ave, uh, Athena. Everyone's kind of been giving their takes on Athena, the stable coin or vault or whatever whatever they are. And then uh, Coindesk actually wrote a really great uh, op-ed on the vibe shift uh,
2: that's going on. Which one do you guys want to close with? Let's talk Gauntlet. I feel like the Athena takes have been... New yeah. All right,
1: I'll tee it up. So Gauntlet, obviously, they're um, one of the oldest and I'd say most respected uh, sort of service providers on the DAO side of things in crypto. Most of what they do is sort of risk analysis and mitigation for protocols. And Aave, um, you know, I, I, it's just one of their longest standing, at least from the outside, kind of strongest relationships. And so yesterday in the forum, they basically released this post saying, hey, unfortunately, we are terminating our relationship with with Ave the protocol. And I guess they were in the middle of a year long, roughly $1.6 million contract. So I'm not really sure what that looks like. Uh, from a contractual standpoint or what they're going to have to do. But they basically cited... They cited a couple of reasons, but what it seems like, uh, and again, not an insider on, on anything here, is that there were some disagreements in between Gauntlet and Mark Zeller over at Ave. And Mark is an extremely active, pretty prolific delegate um, who's done a lot of great things for the protocol. Definitely also has a lot of control on the Ave side of things. And it almost kind of sounded like... <laughs> like, uh, yeah, they just we're at odds from a personal standpoint. And um, I, I'd be curious on, on where you guys came, uh you know, shook out on this whole
2: thing. I mean, it's a big contract to sever, which is kind of surprising. Um, and uh, I think gauntlet has done good work for Ave. There's some, some stuff that we've disagreed with. Like, you know, we thought they should have been a little bit heavier handed on allowing Mishka from curve to borrow, you know, 50 60 70 million dollars from Ave, like probably not doing your job well um but i do think these risk scoring consultancies are helpful uh but at the end of the day DAOs are closely held and you know they're controlled by people who have tokens and if they don't want you there you're kind of done so i don't know i like Tarun. i like ave um i do think that there's things that they could have done better in the past but you know, bygones are bygones at this point.
0: Uh, one point of
1: clarification, maybe I missed this. Who who severed the contract? Uh, it was from the Gauntlet side. So there's a there was a post, not a particularly long post. Just that it was from uh, John Morrow, who I I don't know personally, but I guess he's one of the co founders at at Gauntlet, and just said. You know, we have, you know, basically paraphrasing here, we've loved working with Ave in the past, but Godlet is no longer able to continue our work with Ave, and we're terminating our payment stream as soon as possible, and looking to find a replacement for the risk steward position, which is what they held. Right.
0: Which is, you know, in a lot of ways, a service provider firing you as as the client
2: is not something that typically happens very often. No. <laughs> no. I'm firing myself. I'll I'll see myself out. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. um,
0: I I think it does highlight just like DAOs are not, you know, in 2021, it was, okay, we're going to figure out token economics. Then we're just going to like wave this magic wand. Governance is going to be solved as well. Like (laughs) government, governance has taken, you know, countries who have all the resources in the world hundreds of years to be able to you yeah, know, yeah, ossify and get to a point of uh, solidity that actually, you know, really has the effect of the intentions that they started with. And, and I think when you have a doubt, um of, of governance participants that probably aren't experts in risk analysis and parameterization, and um, th- there's a lot of politicking involved, um, it does make for, you know, who's actually controlling these things um, as, a, as a major question. Um, it's kind of like saying if you have a bunch of people who own shares in a business, like who are the people representing those people? And, you know, whatever percentage it is, I can't remember off the top of my head is now of like the S B 500 is now owned by index funds. Well, who's actually voting with those shares? In many cases, it is the index providers themselves, the vanguards, fidelities of the world who are taking those shares and voting them on behalf of every 401k, you know, uh, owner of Apple stock, let's say. Um, they're educated. They know it's sort of like a representative democracy in a lot of ways, um, but that's not how a lot of these DAOs are structured. And that you do have, you know, the random uh, Ave token whale who who has the ability to sway votes, um, and and that can get problematic.
2: L- last thing before we wrap, um, different topic. So Circle has conti- discontinued support for USDC on Tron. This was always one of the weirder things that was going on in crypto that Michael and I had no idea what the true story was. Like, there's like 3 billion or 4 billion of like stable coins or staked USDT on Tron. You know, it's like moving around a lot. There's a lot of uh, people using it allegedly. Um, and Circle has apparently decided that this is no longer legitimate. They will not support it. They're going to remove support. Um, I think there's going to be another shoe to drop here. Basically like there's the ongoing Justin Sun lawsuit. There's a lot of sketchy stuff happening on, on Tron. Maybe, maybe next week we'll have a little bit more clarity, but this is a, this is a big deal in, in stable coin land. You know, it's probably four or five or 6% of total stable. Outstanding.
0: Well, USDT is the primary stable coin on Tron. And that's where like what 60, 70% of USDT exists. And I think that that's like the preferred payment, uh, for a lot of you know non-us rest of world countries like turkey Tron is is how people pay people and and uh Tron specifically usdt on Tron is is, is mechanism of payment um I, I mean we don't need to stoke the fire of of uh lawsuits but um I, I can see that I could also just see you know usdc circle being like hey we we relinquish, we relinquish this, this network, not something that we need to venture into. Especially, you know, keep in mind Circle's trying to get
1: ready for an IPO later this year, supposedly. Forgot about that. Dude, I have just never understood Tether. I I it's just been such a question mark for me and I'm not sure if I have any intelligent opinions on it. Like I don't know. We'll see. I wouldn't be surprised at that prediction, Vance, but
2: I have no knowledge. So but it a good call. Up back in the day, I shorted tether on BitMEX when I was living in Tokyo. Uh, immediately got liquidated, and then my girlfriend broke up with me. So I'm no. i stopped trying to understand what's going on with tether.
1: I, the Widowmaker and
2: Michael, <laughs> Michael's on the, on the phone. Call with him.
0: And I I asked I was asking, did the trade get put out? Basically, like, did the trade happen? And before Vance even responded, that the trade is live. It was (laughs) liquidated.
2: It was instant liquidation. And then, and then she bounced. She saw your trade, was like, nah. She was
1: out. There's a must go.
2: Yeah. (laughs) Yeah.
1: Oh, boy. Um, all right, fellas, this one was a really fun one. Um, see you here, same time, Hey everyone, Mike here. If you're a Bell Curve listener, you know that transferring assets across chains can be a massive pain. I certainly do. I complain about it on this program all the time. That is why we are incredibly excited to have teamed up with the Wormhole Foundation, the stewards of the Wormhole Protocol. And the coolest part about this particular partnership is that they have made custom Bell Curve NFTs, which you can get and mint for free. So click the link at the bottom of this episode. Take you get your free NFT.